Today's reading is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. This is the message. When Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed a hillside. Those who were apprenticed to him, the committed, climbed with him. Arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and taught his climbing companions. This is what he said. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are, no more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink and the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourselves cared for. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and heart, put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer even, for though they don't like it, I do, and all heaven applauds. And know that you are in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. I love this section of the New Testament that we're going to look at. We're going to begin looking at today. Uh, We're looking at it at this point in the series because it's early in Jesus' ministry. He's been baptized. He went through the wilderness with Satan. And now he's really begun his ministry, his his life, everything that he came for is beginning to gather momentum. Including this crowd that has been listening to him and has been saying there's something about this guy. We've never heard anything like this before. And they want to be there. It's early in our, our series because uh, our, of Matthew because it's preparing us for Lent. Because you already know that uh, beginning February the 19th, which is Ash Wednesday, there's going to be a new article every week for 40 40 days uh, about the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, each, each day we will take a little sliver of it and, and look at it more deeply. And a, a second reason, well actually a third reason that uh, this is appearing at this point in the series is because of the way that the Sermon on the Mount gives us the best, most crystal clear look at what Jesus was thinking about when he talked about kingdom, when he talked about vision, when he talks about us being involved with him. I think if if you had 
only this piece of Scripture, these three chapters, to give someone. If none of the rest of the Bible existed, these three chapters would be the most important ones that you could give them. So a lot of misunderstanding about the Beatitudes, which is the part of the Sermon on the Mount that Erica read to us this morning, some people just throw them out. They say, these, these are impossible. You can't do this. This is for a future time. Uh, I think they're dead wrong. I think they are right in the way that the, the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount sort of pull you up short. It's sort of like you've, you've gotten to the end of your, your rope, your leash, when God says to us, wait a minute, this is not what I had in mind. You're not, you're not living the way that I want you to live. It's meant to do that. It's meant to infuriate us. It's meant to, uh, to cause us to go, wait a minute. Because you, you come face to face with your own will and what it is that you want. And Jesus says, no, this is what I want. Other people see the Beatitudes as a series of to-dos. Okay, I've got to be more poor in spirit. I've got to work on it. It's not a to-do list. It's not God will bless you when you mourn, for example, or when you have achieved that thing of being pure in heart, as difficult as it is. I think the Beatitudes... It's more like a rousing congratulations from God. Not because of some accomplishment. Oh, you've achieved the status of mourner. Here's my blessing. Here's my congratulations. No, it's more like I join you in your mourning. I know what that's like, what it feels like when that happens to you. David Lose says there's a trap hidden in the Beatitudes. Believing that Jesus is setting up conditions of blessing rather than actually blessing the hearers. When I hear, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, I tend to think, Am I pure enough in spirit? Have I achieved that so that Jesus will bless me? Or should I be trying to be pure in spirit? Similarly, Fred Craddock, uh, one of my favorites, writes, a beatitude is a blessing or announcement of God's love. It's an announcement of God's love. It's it's Jesus standing in alongside of us saying, it's going to be okay. He goes on, the language of a blessing is also performative. The pronouncement of the blessing actually conveys the blessing. Blessed are you when you mourn. It's not... Hortatory 
It's not exhortation. It's not pointing the finger saying, do more of this. Be more like that. Preachers, Lost says, Craddock says rather, are too easily tempted to urge, push, and exhort us to implement these qualities, and I've done my share of that. John Scott, one last comment uh, by way of introduction, calls, in fact, he wrote a book about the Sermon on the Mount, and he called it Christian Counterculture. And it was written back in the days of Haight-Ashbury and, and the counterculture movement and free love and all of that. And Scott says, no, Sermon on the Mount is the Christian counterculture. It's how to live against culture, against all the things that pull us in the other direction. So today I want to think about the beginning of the sermon. And I want to, to remind you to to join me on that 40-day journey through the Sermon on the Mount. Listen, because in this you get the pure stuff. This is like the Gospel boiled down to the stain in the bottom of the pan. It's, it's the best. It's the purest. It's, it's the closest thing you'll get to understanding the mind of Christ. There are five major sections in Matthew. Sort of reminiscent of the, the five books of the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Although I don't know if that's what Matthew had in mind. I don't know that if that's why he organized Jesus' sayings. But all of these five sections end with when Jesus had finished all these sayings. Dot, dot, dot. Sort of like little flags, little mental flags throughout Matthew to help us kind of see what, what's happening here. The first one is Matthew 7.28 at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus had finished these sayings, he... Matthew 11, after he commissions the twelve, he's given them some instructions. And after he had finished these sayings, dot, dot, dot. Matthew 13, at the conclusion of teaching parables to a great crowd. It's a different kind of teaching. It's not like the Sermon on the Mount, but it's teaching nonetheless. He's letting us in on what kingdom living is like. Matthew 19.1, in answer to the disciples when they came to Him and said, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who's going to sit at the head table? which launches Jesus into this teaching section. Matthew 26, verse 1, in answer to the disciples about when the temple would be destroyed. Jesus and His disciples were walking through Jerusalem and they're going, oh, look at that, look at that. Oh, the temple, isn't it gorgeous? Jesus says, in three days the temple will be destroyed. And they think he's talking about himself. Pardon me, about the temple. But he's talking about himself. So there's this teaching section in Matthew 26 that ends with, at the conclusion, 
when he had, when he had finished these sayings, he dot, dot, dot. One of the things that is clear is the fact that, the, that crowds and crowds of people followed Jesus around. There was no marketing campaign. There's no marketing campaign. They just know that they've heard something that is incredible, that is extraordinary. And it's true. And the way that it cuts through all of the human stuff. These are there because they had been the, the beneficiaries of Jesus' healing. They had heard little scraps of His teaching as they watched Him walk around the northern end of the Sea of Galilee doing what he did. In the latter part of my life, I've, I've really thought that that whole attractional gospel kind of thing that you saw in churches uh, was just all wrong. You have people coming to listen to Jesus because they perceive in his teaching something worth hearing. True to this, Matthew ends the Sermon on the Mount with this. When Jesus finished these things, the crowds were astonished at His teaching, for Jesus taught them as one having authority and not like their scribes. And in Mark, when, when did this man get this wisdom and these deeds of power, they asked. And the chief priests and the scribes kept looking kept looking for a way to kill him, but the crowd was spellbound by his teaching. That's the effect that Jesus has on us. But you know, today we yawn. Troubling. We think we have to attract people to hear what Jesus has to say. That's why we did the whole attractional thing. We'll, you know, we'll we'll do this great showy thing and we'll get people in. But around the Sea of Galilee, people were showing up because of the truth of what he was saying. Because they had experienced what it was like to be a follower of him. And so Jesus in the Beatitudes gives them this grace-filled message. Oh, the blessedness of a person who mourns. I know there's some sitting in this audience tonight or this afternoon, and I know that you're carrying burdens. Accept my blessing. Because that's a gateway into to other things in your life. Brian Stoffergren writes that the focus of Jesus' teaching concerns the good news of the empire of God, the kingdom of God. Further, the sermon is not a comprehensive manual or rule book. Rather, it offers a series of illustrations or examples or case studies of life and God's rule. Visions of the identity and the way of life that results from encountering God in the present and also in the future. Imagine what the 
Sermon on the Mount would have sounded like in comparison to the godless world that Jesus' audience lived in. A world where people who were lowly, grieving, deferential toward others would be welcomed as a result. Our world kicks, kicks those people out. Our world says, uh, you have no place with us. Imagine what that would have sounded like. Imagine what it would sound like. People who longed for righteousness and wanted to live accordingly would be recognized for their, for their appetite for that sort of thing. People would notice them and hanging around them would go, these people are different. I've never seen anybody like this before. And people who treat other, others with mercy and grace, welcomed by God. Thinking more broadly about the whole sermon, imagine what the world would look like where people do what they pledge to do. Bev and I have a friend who uh, refuses to make any promise because she has taken Jesus literally. Let your last yes be yes and your no be no. and Anything else is, is wrong. I don't think that's what Jesus was saying, on the other hand. Uh, I don't think he was saying never, never pledge to do anything, never promise somebody that you'll do something for them. What Jesus was saying is, make sure you make a promise you keep. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. I, I'm really staggered by how much there is in the Bible about keeping promises. Imagine where people don't violate their, their promises and uh, they don't perpetuate violence against other people, where people don't strut and brag but just do good under the radar. Think about how churches would change if they thought about the kingdom of God, if the kingdom of God became uh, priority number one in terms of their, their, their thoughts and their plans and their vision. Kingdom of God, number one. It would be a world where you wouldn't need police or law courts or locks on doors. Imagine what that would be like. Of course, that, that's not going to happen in this lifetime until the Lord comes again. But just imagine what a world like that would be. This is from Frederick Beekner. Jesus saved for the last the ones who side with heaven, even when any fool can see that it's the wrong side. It's the losing side. And all you get is pains for your pain. You can see them looking back at him, Beekner says. They're not what you'd call a high-class crowd. Peasants and fisher folk, for the most part, on the shabby side, not all that bright. It doesn't look as if there's been any among, if there's any hero among them. Beekner's dead right. That's, that's what we do. We read success books because we want to know how to be successful. 
Jesus says, no. Not that we don't want to do well in, in things that we do in this life. There's nothing wrong with that. But in terms of the kingdom of God, that's not the language of the kingdom of God. Jesus warned us about this when He said the last will be first. Boy, that turns the world upside down, doesn't it? The last will be first. The weak would be strong. Remember in the last election, we had people saying, I don't side with the weak. I don't believe in the weak. Jesus says, ah, those are my people. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. That's the, the Beatitudes distills what we've looked at today. But it's really the spirit of the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus saying, my way runs counter against the prevailing thought of the culture, of the world. It really is Christian counterculture. It's exciting stuff. Maddening stuff because it makes you confront your own prejudices, your own beliefs, your own desires. Jesus loves to do that. Let's pray. Oh God, your kingdom outshines every other puny kingdom we could imagine. Your kingdom is more hospitable more welcoming than anything we can contrive. Your kingdom beckons us into a future that is far greater than we can imagine. And the Beatitudes give us a good model for fixing our expectation of that kingdom and of living in it. Please help us. We want to be kingdom people. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.